0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four,
1: three, two, one, two, ignition.
0: Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington correspondent. Major, that's nonsense.
1: Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this most amazing program known as The Takeout, where everyone who takes in this show, whether it's on CBSN, more than 75 great radio stations across our country... Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, or the original adopters on podcast platforms, you know we're two things each and every week. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. We have guests from across the political spectrum on this show. It is not an interrogation, it is a conversation. And we invite you to play along with us this week and every week. And speaking of all of our radio stations around the country... Special message for those in the West, particularly Washington, Oregon, and California, my home state of California, the fires have been devastating, the air quality is terrible, the trauma and the damage, almost unimaginable, our hearts go out to you, please carry on, and those in the south of our country dealing with Hurricane Sally and whatever comes from it, know we're thinking about you, stay safe, be well, take care, and many thanks at all responses, both places, to the first responders, FEMA, and everyone else who's trying to help out. Our guest this week is Sarah Sanders. You might know that name. She was the press secretary for the president of the United States, the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. She's got a new book. It's called Speaking for Myself. We will talk about that, news of the day, the re-election campaign for the president, and many other things. Sarah, hello. Good to see you.
2: It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Garrett.
1: You can call me Major.
2: (laughs) I'm out of practice. I don't know what's going on with me. It's been too long. Yeah, she can. I'm, you can I'm, call, I guess I've lost my touch. You can,
1: you can call me by my given name. Uh, trust me, I've been called worse. Um,
2: and, so have I. So I apologize. I don't know. I don't know. I'm losing it this, this week. That's all
1: right. So uh, for everyone's uh, understanding, this is not going to be a recreation of a White House briefing. Uh, I'm going to ask and Sarah's going to answer and she's going to have all the time she needs to answer. And we're going to take the tr- conversation in a lot of different directions. Um, The title of your book, Speaking for Myself, as opposed to whom, Sarah?
2: (laughs) Well, I spent two and a half years in the White House and a year before that on the campaign, speaking on behalf of the president. And this is my version, my story, Um, not just about my time in the White House. Certainly, it's very heavy on that. But it's, you know, what happened while I was there, Um, but also my life before I ever made it to the White House and sort of... um, how I got there, but also I thought there were so many stories and so many books that had been written about this president, but not from somebody who had really spent a lot of time and was there from day one for two and a half years by the president's side. And so I wanted people to have that inside glimpse and get to know the Donald Trump that I saw every day.
1: For the parts of the book that are specific, did you rely on your own memory? Did you keep a diary? Did you record things how do we know they're va- they're, ver- they're how did you verify them to your satisfaction
2: well uh, certainly some is from um, my memory. There's some certainly public record, but also um, my husband, when I would come home at the end of the day, um, he's a, a political consultant, very interested in politics. You know, he'd ask me how my day was, what'd you do? And I kind of walk through and he actually jotted down notes and took down some notes so that I could remember um, more just as a catalog for our families because our kids were really young and we wanted them to know about some of the really significant significant moments and things that we had been involved in during that time frame so he jotted those notes down at the end of the day and I used a lot of that too uh, for basis of you know some of the big moments and to keep a chronological order of some of the things that took place.
1: So your husband Brian was your diarist for your time in the White House?
2: (laughs) I I don't know if he'd like being called that but but, but I'm sure he's been called worse too. So, um, yeah, he helped kind of keep track of, of everything and keep that sort of family record for us. He, Maybe historian, family historian is a better word.
1: He's a recurring figure in the book. You mention him more than almost anyone I've ever seen writing about their life in Washington mention their spouse. Why?
2: Well, I couldn't have done any of the work that I did without him. I mean, we were uh, complete partners throughout the process. He was the rock, not just that kept our family afloat, but that kept me afloat on some of the most difficult days. And um, he's just a big part of my life. And so obviously, um, it would make sense for him to be a big part of the book.
1: So you write early on in the book about when your father was about to become governor, and the sitting governor, Jim Guy Tucker, pulled a kind of a fast one. Briefly, tell my audience that story, and I want to have a follow-up question and conversation with you about that.
2: Sure. So um, Bill Clinton had been elected president in 1992 when that happened. his The lieutenant governor, Jim Guy Tucker, became governor, and they had a special election. My dad was elected lieutenant governor in 1993 shortly thereafter, Jim Guy Tucker was convicted on whitewater related felonies and had announced his intent to resign on July 15th. Um, When that day came, there were thousands of Republicans who had come from all over the state because we hadn't seen a Republican governor in quite some time. They were pretty excited. They filled the halls of the Capitol and the governor decided you know what i've changed my mind he calls my dad tells him i don't think i'm going to resign i'm going to fight this and waited out, and chaos erupted in the halls. Um, by law in Arkansas, because he had a felony conviction, he wasn't allowed to continue as governor. So we had two people claiming to be governor at the same time, and a true constitutional crisis. Um, eventually, and by the end of that day, later that evening, after much urging from a lot of his Democrat allies, convinced him to go ahead and step down. It didn't make sense for him to remain in office, And so that evening, much later than planned and anticipated, he resigned from office. And my dad later took the oath and became the governor of Arkansas, where he served for um, almost 11 years.
1: The reason I ask you about that is because you write in the book about the importance of the rule of law, the importance about the law as it's understood, and the law as it has been applied in that case. And I ask you that because there are those in this country, Sarah, who wonder if the president- loses this election, he might not vacate the office. A, do you have any doubt about that, one? And two, do you think the president has ever done anything that would create that impression in people's minds that he might be ambivalent about leaving office if he actually loses?
2: Well, I'm obviously very hopeful that that doesn't happen. Uh, My hope is that we have a very clear and decisive victory in November and that the president's reelected for four more years. Um, I anticipate that um, that is what will take place. And so I'm kind of focused on that. I don't think we have to worry about all the hypotheticals. Um, If anybody showed during 2016 that they were unwilling to accept the results of a duly elected president, um, that would have been the Democrats who spent two and a half years attacking this president and pushing a false narrative. Uh, for the sin of winning an election, calling him a traitor to his own country. And so I think if anybody has a lack of credibility on that topic, it would be the Democrats. But I don't foresee that being a problem. I think Donald Trump will win outright in November. And hopefully there won't be a lot of uh, back and forth tension and we can move on with another great four years.
1: So the president once said recently that the only way he could lose is if the election is rigged. To my knowledge, Sarah, no candidate for the presidency or sitting president has ever made that declaration before that the only way I can lose is if the election is rigged. Are you comfortable with that assertion?
2: Well, I think the president feels like because the country has done well under his leadership, he should be reelected to continue building on the legacy he has over the last four years. Again, I think the president will win in November, so I'm not too concerned um, about uh, the fallout and the back and forth.
1: No, but it's not fallout or back and forth. He's saying something essentially asserting to his followers who, as you know and I know, as well as you do, are passionate and are true believers that the only way that this can happen is if something fraudulent and criminal has occurred. That's not true, is it? I mean, the president could lose fair and square, could he not?
2: Certainly he could, but I I don't think he will. And I think that we should focus on what's in front of us right now, making sure that we protect our election integrity, making sure that states are conducting free and fair elections. I think that should be our focus. I think the president will win. And that's what I'm spending my time doing um, until we get to November.
1: The book is Speaking for Myself. The author is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout. And I'm going to find out who was calling me on the House phone in just a second. I'll be back. I'm Major Garrett.
2: or download the Rakuten app today. That's R A K U T E N. Shoppers get it.
0: From CBS News. This is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome back Sarah Huckabee Sanders is our guest speaking for myself is her new book. Sarah let's I know you are you said that you are uh, an advocate of the president's re-election you uh, Hope and expect he will be reelected. Are you are you playing any formal or informal role in the re-election campaign?
2: No, I'm just a supporter from the outside right now. Um, Obviously still maintain a number of relationships, both with people in the White House and on the campaign, but I don't have a formal role with the campaign at all. Do you want one? No, I'm happy uh, doing this from my side. It's nice to be back home in Arkansas, spending a lot more time with my family. And um, I get to do a little bit of, uh, you know, being part of the process without being in the high demand uh, and crazy, schedule of being a, having a formal role. So I, I like this side a little better.
1: Do you think this campaign could use your help?
2: <laughs> I think the campaign's doing fine without me. At the end of the day, it's all about the candidate. And I think the president has a good record to run on. I think if he stays focused on that, um, I think he'll do very well in November.
1: So baseline question, can you be a patriotic American and support Joe Biden?
2: Um, you know, I, I think certainly people believe you can, but I have you? trouble... Do I personally think you can? Uh, I think based on the views that he has moved so far to the radical left, I think he's making it much harder. Um, But that doesn't mean you can't be, but I think it's making it very difficult to love our country and support the ideals and the things that we were founded on that make America special and unique, but wanna strip all of that away. And um, I think that they have a real problem on their hands trying to fight through that message.
1: So if I hear you correctly, being a Biden supporter raises questions in your mind about your underlying patriotism.
2: Well, what I'm saying is that they have moved so far to the left, they have become uh, so controlled by the liberal mob that I think it's making it difficult for them to make that case. I'm not saying that doesn't mean that you can't love America and support Joe Biden. But I think if you really love what makes America special, then you wouldn't vote for somebody who wants to take away a lot of what those things are.
1: And what are those things, Sarah?
2: Well, I think certainly the Second Amendment is under attack I think that religious freedom is under attack by the radical left. I think individual freedoms are under attack by the radical left. I think law and order is under attack by the radical left. Um, These are things that are principles for our country, guiding principles. If you take that away, you fundamentally change who we are as a country. People like Bernie Sanders, a self-proclaimed socialist um, have come out and many people have said that Joe Biden is aligned very closely with Bernie. Um, he's playing a big role. He came out in the convention. Uh, I think that's a problem. I don't want America to become a socialist country. and I don't think most Americans want America to become a socialist country.
1: Can you be a true Republican and not support President Trump?
2: Well, I think it's difficult. I, here, here's, here's the real question. At the end of the day, you have two candidates. You don't get to create a special candidate that fits all of the things that you really want. You have two people, one of them will be president, either Joe Biden or Donald Trump. You have to decide who matches up most with what you really believe in. As a Republican, there is only one candidate that matches up with the Republican Party platform and Republican Party principles. Joe Biden could not be further from what Republicans support day in and day out. People may not like President Trump's style, but On substance, he has governed as a very conservative Republican. Um, I think one of the areas that you can look at that people are probably surprised by from this president is the commitment he made uh, when it came to the judiciary. He has delivered on that in a huge way, not just with the two Supreme Court justices, but also with the over 200 federal justices he's appointed. That is, I think, going to be one of the president's greatest legacies. That alone, I think, should give Republicans, real Republicans, a solid and good reason to support this president. It's very hard to call yourself a Republican and vote for somebody who doesn't support a single Republican principle.
1: You were press secretary when Bob Woodward wrote his first book, Fear, if I recall correctly. He has said to our Scott Pelley at 60 Minutes that the White House concluded fear was true. Do you agree?
2: Uh, I don't. Uh, There were certainly parts I I didn't agree with um, and certainly the sentiment of the book. I'm sure that there were some people that uh, that may have been their experience, but it wasn't mine. But here's what at the end of the day, I didn't need to read Bob Woodward's book, fear or rage or any other. It's one of the reasons I wrote my own book is because I was there. I don't need to listen to the interviews of others. I lived it. And that's why I put my story down on paper. Cause I wanted people to see the other side. And that's the reason I wrote the book.
1: Did you read my book?
2: I read part of it. I didn't read the whole thing, but I do have it on my shelf at my house signed by the way, which pretty cool.
1: Of those, uh, books about the president. What do you think? Well, let me let me let me go back. If you had still been press secretary, would you have encouraged or maybe if you'd had a voice in this permitted the president to talk to Bob Woodward 18 times for rage?
2: Uh, I probably would not have encouraged uh, that level of um, access to the president.
1: Would you, would you have laid on the tracks to stop it?
2: <laughs> um, I don't know. It probably would have depended on what else was going on. So sometimes you have to pick your battles, and it may have depended on the circumstances around it. Uh, look, at the end of the day, I think a lot of presidents, um, Donald Trump and his predecessors, have tried to inject their narrative into Bob Woodward's books and try to make them better For them than they have been in the past. I know George Bush did it both ways. He didn't interview one he did for another. um, And it never worked out well for any of them. So maybe at some point, they'll all learn a lesson and just realize a Bob Woodward book about your presidency probably isn't going to be one you like. So maybe don't spend too much time on it.
1: The president believes he's a charmer, and many people say that he is. He also has an affinity for celebrities. Do you think both of those played a role in him participating so avidly this second time?
2: Uh, I think certainly um, him wanting to put, again, his voice into the story, hoping to change the narrative and make it a more positive book about his presidency. I think certainly that played a role.
1: When the president says, I played it down, I still like playing it down. Speaking of the pandemic, what do you think he means?
2: I think he wants to create a sense of calm. He doesn't want hysteria and panic across the country. And I think what the president has done is tried to take action to protect both American lives and American livelihoods and tried to find a good balance. This is an unprecedented challenge, uh, one that no modern president has had to really deal with at this level. And I think the president has tried to do everything he can, again, to strike that balance between doing all that is possible to protect American lives while at the same time do everything we can to keep our economy from completely collapsing and protect American livelihoods.
1: As a matter of politics and uh, intellectual solidity, can you play down nearly 200,000 American deaths?
2: Well, I don't think the president tried to play down the severity of the deaths at any point. Um, I don't think anybody considers any loss of life, whether it's one or 200,000, as something to ignore or not to take seriously. I think you can look at the actions the president has taken. I'd also refer back to Dr. Fauci's comments. Um, Everybody has been using everything he has said since day one until uh, most recently when he said that. Everything that the president, he's told and asked the president to do, he's done. And he's taken that advice and he hasn't seen anything different. It's interesting. I haven't seen that clip playing over and over the same way that I have on so many other accounts from Dr. Fauci. But I think as one of the, the leaders in the task force and in this process is a good person to lean on, um, certainly in what the president has done and the way that he's led the country through this pandemic.
1: Knowing the president as you do, what was your reaction when you saw him at the podium talking about disinfectant and UV light?
2: (laughs) Well, I I didn't catch that when live, so I saw the clips later. Um, I took that as the president going a little bit off the cuff, which he likes to do sometimes. Sometimes that works out for him and sometimes it doesn't. That was one of those times I don't think it probably did.
1: That's the voice of Sarah Sanders. Her book is Speaking for Myself. We will continue our conversation. One thing I want to put in a little commercial for another enterprise of mine. If you love this program, The Takeout, you wouldn't be here if you didn't. Uh, Take a listen to my new podcast once a week. It's a deep dive into one topic. It's called The Debrief. You can find it on all great podcast platforms. And many thanks to all of our listeners and viewers around the country who love this show. If you like it, I'm guaranteeing you, you will find much to like possibly even love, about the debrief. Back with Sarah Sanders on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout.
0: The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today and use code SIZZLE2020 at checkout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
1: Welcome back to my dining room slash home office. I'm Major Garrett, working from home. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is our special guest. Over her right shoulder, you can see the book. It is called Speaking for Myself. We're having a conversation about that. Sarah, you write in the book about several people who no longer work in the administration. On another network, on The View, you said that many people who have left the administration who then criticized the president are simply disgruntled employees. Does the president have a tendency to attract people who become disgruntled or do they suddenly become disgruntled once they leave this particular White House?
2: I think every White House goes through some transition periods uh, certainly some people leave not on the best of terms I, I think a lot of yes yeah, yeah, sir but
1: you have to now you have to acknowledge the numbers are much larger with this administration
2: I think sometimes people come in with their own agenda I think that's the case with a couple of the people that I write about um, and they weren't happy when their agenda wasn't followed sometimes I think they get drunk on their own power and think that they were elected to somebody at the end of the day only two people in that building were elected, Donald Trump and Mike Pence, and it is their agenda, their vision that should be carried out and implemented. And I think sometimes people find that very frustrating. That was certainly the case, I think, with a couple of the people that I wrote about. John Bolton? Absolutely. I think he is a uh, classic case of somebody who sometimes forgot he wasn't the president and often wanted to drive his own agenda and got upset when those moments didn't happen. But as much as people want to focus on the people that have left and are disgruntled, there are also a lot of people who have been working alongside the president who maintain a great relationship with him, came in on day one, or some of us who have left but still maintain a good relationship and had a great experience working for the president. But we don't ever hear those stories talked about very often because it's just not as much fun, I guess, for the news media.
1: So what do you regard? How how do you regard the uh, service of John Kelly as the chief of staff? Because in the book, you mention favorably that he brought discipline, he brought order, and he helped things get more structured. Uh, You also write in some detail about the short-lived career of Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, How would you assess John Kelly's service to this president and how do you regard his silence in the aftermath after the explosive allegations leveled at the president in the Atlantic magazine?
2: Well, I had a good relationship with General Kelly during his time at the White House. I think certainly in the early days he was a good fit for Chief of Staff. Towards the end, I think that the the two figureheads didn't mix very well after a while. Um, Meeting
1: pre- the president and General Kelly.
2: Correct. And so by the end, I think it was the right decision for both individuals uh, for a new Chief of Staff to come in. But I do think certainly at the beginning, General Kelly. Um, was a good chief of staff and served a very good purpose of bringing that structure in order and some process to the White House.
1: You mentioned in the book several times the president looking at you specifically and asking for your opinion on some, in some cases, very big issues, very weighty presidential decisions. Looking back on it, Sarah, do you think you were more than a press secretary? Do you think you were something larger?
2: I think I certainly had a different role than some press secretaries have in the White House. Um, I was in the room for most of the big moments during that two and a half years, uh, certainly the two years that I was press secretary uh, with the president and traveled with him on every foreign trip and sat in the room during those meetings with foreign leaders. And so I I think certainly that role grew and changed a little bit um, as it went on, but certainly a little different than some press secretaries in previous administrations.
1: Did you find yourself sometimes acting as mediator?
2: Um, You know, even between the president and other people or Yes. Um, Maybe in some cases, but also I think uh, being somebody who doesn't get too worked up and remains calm I serve that role sometimes just in staff not not necessarily with just with the president involved um, but I maintained good relationships with a lot of the people around the building and I think that helped I didn't come with my own agenda I had a very good because of the good relationship I had I had the ability to be very candid when I didn't like something I said it if I liked something I also you know noted that as well But I think the president trusted me and I appreciated that he was willing to listen to me when I had something to say.
1: Because it's been described to me that there were times when you were a mediator. There were also times when the president, after a big meeting, would actually call you or talk with you separately, privately, as a sounding board. True?
2: Uh, Yes, that happened a number of times. Again, I think he trusted me. He knew I wasn't trying to push um, my own policy, but was trying to give advice that I thought was the best for him and the best for the country.
1: And when he looked around the room in the Oval Office, did he sometimes figure half the people in here aren't really with me?
2: Um, I don't know if I would say half. I'm sure that there were moments where he would look around the room and there were certain people that he wasn't 100% on, but I don't think it was half the room. I I think the president has some very talented and devoted and incredible people who love our country and work insane hours every single day trying to make it better um, with enormous stress and pressure um, from the outside against them. And I think that those people that show up every day and keep fighting for our country um, are doing a really great job.
1: Though some in the audience might assume this, I didn't pick that half out of the thin air. A reason I said half is it's because it's in between what Jared Kushner is quoted as saying to Bob Woodward in his book, Rage, that in the early days, 80% of the people thought they were on behalf of the administration trying to save the world from Donald Trump and 20% thought he was trying to save the world. Now he believes it's the other way. 80% believe Donald Trump is saving the world and there's still 20% in the administration who believe they're saving the world from Donald Trump. I I chose something dead in the middle of that because Jared Kushner said it on the record. Do you think what Jared told Bob Woodward is an accurate description of those in the early days who worked for the administration and those who work for it now?
2: I think there's definitely a difference um, from the early days to now. Um, I don't know about the specific numbers, but there's certainly been a transition in the other direction since the beginning to where the president is at this point.
1: Do you have any reason to doubt Jared said that?
2: Um, I mean, if it's on the record, um, I'd refer you back to Jared. I wasn't there, so I can't really say. But I I don't disagree with the sentiment. Um, Maybe not the numbers, but certainly the sentiment.
1: Got it. You also speak uh, quite feelingly in the book about being a mother, being a press secretary and a mother, a very high-profile White House official and being a mother. And I wonder if it was stressful, particularly in that regard for you, Sarah, or is still stressful now, when you read stories about those mothers separated from their children at the border and the difficulties even before COVID-19 with that, and then the very more pronounced difficulties since then. Are you at all ambivalent, at all torn as a mother about that policy and its application?
2: Uh, Certainly as a parent, I think you're always looking at how best you can protect your kids. Um, I, I certainly think that I understand the willingness of a parent wanting to come to America and try to give a better life for their kids. I also know how difficult that journey is and putting your kids in harm's way, making that journey is very difficult. Um, Letting them get carried off by coyotes and drug cartels is a very uh, awful thing. I think the entire process is horrific. It's one of the reasons I think we have to do better as a country to fix our immigration system as a parent. Um, one of the hardest parts of being the White House press secretary was trying to protect my kids um, and not just protect them from criticism. Um, In fact, I tried not to shield them too much from that because I wanted them to understand why we don't treat people that way, why we always try to be respectful in those moments and use that as a teaching moment. But I was the first White House press secretary to ever require secret service. You don't get that because somebody said mean things. You get that because somebody made a credible threat against you. That's when my job got really difficult because it made it much harder to protect my kids, to keep them safe. Um, And that was one of the most difficult parts and hardest things about being a press secretary.
1: And going back to the reference you made to coyotes, which for people who may not know those are traffickers who abuse and exploit those who are trying to reach our borders. Don't you think America should be better than coyotes and provide maximum care, especially for parents with young children making that perilous journey?
2: Again, I think we need to fix our system. I think it's completely broken and we have to do better as a country. I think one of the things I'm happy and glad of is that we do live in a country that people are trying to break into and break instead of break out of. And we should be grateful that we get to live in America. We should try to fix the broken system and do better so that more people can enjoy the freedoms that we have as Americans.
1: That's the voice of Sarah Huckabee Sanders speaking for myself as her book, segment four The Takeout, on the other side of this break.
2: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From
0: CBS News, this is The Takeout with
1: Major Garrett. Welcome back. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is our special guest. We're going to have an abbreviated segment here because Sarah's got to run and we're going to respect that. Um Sarah, who was the best chief of staff of the president?
2: Well, um, I think each of the individual chiefs of staff brought different things to the White House. I think they all had strengths and weaknesses. Um, so I don't know that anyone was head and shoulders above the others, but I think they all brought something different to the table. Um, my understanding is Mark Meadows is doing a good job, but he came in after I left. But I, I think each of them brought something special and good to the table.
1: I asked Jason Miller this. He's a senior advisor, as you well know, to the campaign, and he kind of was a little surprised by the question. So let me put it to you. Do you believe that the president is a net favorite against Joe Biden, but a net underdog against the pandemic?
2: That's an interesting question. I I certainly think he's a favorite uh, stacked up against Joe Biden. I think there's a lot more enthusiasm for this president. Um, Most of the people I think voting for Joe Biden aren't voting for him, but voting against the president. I, I don't think the president's numbers on the COVID pandemic have been strong, but I don't think that as we move into November, um, that's the number one issue. It's certainly still top of mind for a lot of voters. But I think the two places that most voters are looking at right now, as of today, certainly subject to change, but are the economy and who can rebuild it um, and bring us out of the pandemic as stronger and better as a country. And who can provide law and order in our communities, make people feel safer and more secure. And I think on those two issues, Donald Trump is leading and doing better. And I think those are two of the reasons that he will do well in November.
1: Do you believe public polling?
2: Uh, I do believe some of it. That doesn't mean I think it's perfect. Uh, In full disclosure, my husband is a pollster, so I'll be in trouble if I if asked. I If I don't believe in some of it, but I do think you can wait p- polling uh, to shift one way or another. I do think you can ask questions. Because I'm married to a pollster, I know that you can ask things in a way to get answers that you want also. Um, but in a head to head matchup, I think that those numbers are actually really hard to tell. The place where I think polling is the most effective is message testing and whether or not a message really resonates with the particular audience or demographic. But I think a head to head matchup particularly when it comes to donald trump is very difficult to poll i think we saw that in 16 i think that's still the case today
1: do you believe any of the polling data that suggests the president is not doing as well with white women even non-college educated white women
2: Uh, i think his numbers could definitely be better in that sector um certainly i think he has some room to grow there
1: what do you think the problem is
2: Well, I I think he needs to take some of his message directly to people. I think some of that demographic doesn't like his style. uh, But I think if they would focus on the substance, I think most of that demographic would be more supportive of the president.
1: Do you think he gets in the way of his own substance?
2: (laughs) Um, I don't think you can get in the way necessarily of your own substance. He is who he is, um, and it served him pretty well because he's only run for office one time and he became president of the United States. So he must be doing something right, Major.
1: Right, but I'm sure there were moments when you thought this would be a cleaner, better way for the public to absorb this if X had not happened, true? And the X being the president.
2: At the, at the end of the day, um, like I said before, he's the one that 63 million Americans came out and voted for. It's his decision to make. Uh, because people entrusted him to do exactly that, to lead our country. I think he's done that well. I think he has a great four years of accomplishments to run on. I think that's what his message should be. Here's what we've done so far. Here's where we're going. I've proven I can do it. I've proven I can do the things I set out to do and lay out that vision. And if he does that, I think he'll do very well.
1: 45 seconds. What is the reelection message? Because I don't think they have one yet.
2: Well, I I, I think it's back to what I was just saying. I think on two fronts. Specifically. Specifically, um, he is still the disruptor. He is still the change agent in Washington, despite the fact he's an incumbent. He's still the outsider that can actually shake up Washington and get things done in a way that it hasn't been done before, which they still need because Washington is still so broken that it needs somebody that doesn't continue to play by the old playbook. Donald Trump has proven he can do that. He's proven he can get things done that nobody said were possible and And I think he should focus on that message and more specifically on the economy and law and order.
1: From Sarah Huckabee Sanders, straight to the desk of Bill Stepien. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the book is speaking for myself. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Good luck on the book and the tour. And we'll see you soon.
2: You bet. Thanks, Major.
1: Our thanks again to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, her book again, Speaking for Myself. As I mentioned a bit earlier in the show, I have a new podcast. It's called The Debrief. We tackle one topic each week. We do this to learn more about what's happening right now. We also dig a little bit into history and we peer, if we can, into the future. Well, with the first presidential debate on September 29th, next week episode, well, is about just that. Presidential Debates, here is a preview. Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities
0: for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates
1: for the president. The first presidential debate of 2020 will be held September 29th. Very little of this pandemic-influenced election has looked familiar. The national conventions were stripped down infomercials. The rollout of Democratic nominee Joe Biden's running mate, Senator Kamala Harris, was socially distanced, as have been some, but not all, campaign events. Only the televised debates will, if all goes well, look somewhat familiar.
0: I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did
1: when he sought presidency i served with jack kennedy i knew jack kennedy jack kennedy was a friend of mine senator you're no jack kennedy the candidates at center stage will be older than any two nominees in american history in an atmosphere that rewards exhaustive preparation and mental agility what will the american public see independent candidate ross perot governor bill clinton the democratic nominee and President George Bush,
0: the Republican nominee. I was not put on the ballot by either of the two parties. I was not put on the ballot by any PAC money, by any foreign lobbyist money, by any special interest money. This is a movement that came from the people. So I don't think our troops ought to be used for what's called
1: nation building. Like it or not, we are now, the, the United States is now the natural leader of the world. Will the debates change campaign momentum? Have they in the past?
2: How can we trust either of you with our money when both parties got got us into this global economic crisis.
0: I will release my tax returns against my lawyer's wishes when she releases her 33,000 emails
2: that have been deleted. Donald, I know you live in your own reality, but that is not the fact.
1: I'm Major Garrett and this is The Debrief, presidential debates, the white hot arena. If you like what you heard, and we certainly hope you did, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast and look for The Debrief with me, Major Garrett. Again, Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast. That's it for The Takeout. We'll see you here again next week.
0: The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The
1: Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music,
0: listen to blood is thicker the Hargan family killings early and ad free on the 48 hours plus subscription on apple podcasts
2: hi this is jill schlesinger cbs news business analyst certified financial planner and host of the money watch podcast this is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring it is a show that's all about you